Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If money affects your life in any way, Money Making Sense will talk about it. Be financially healthy, wealthy, and wise. Here's your host, Heather Kelly. Welcome to Money Making Sense, the show that talks about all things money. Today, we are talking about, well, there's a lot of things, but we're going to start with how abuse in the home might affect your job potential and money and talk about a specific incident, which I'm guessing one of my guests thought might bring them some extra money. Joining me today is Justin Young. He's the filmmaker and producer of My Hero, The Hitman. Also joining me are two of the subjects of the film, Miley Stant and Shane Stant. Shane, I think I'm going to start with you. In case people haven't heard of the incident, you are most known for being the person that hit Nancy Kerrigan's knee right before the ice skating nationals in 1994. The film that Justin has done talks a little bit about that, what led to this incident, but also... Miley, you're the sister of Shane, and you didn't know a lot about this growing up. Shane, what led to this incident? Well, I mean, I think it, depending on how far you want to go back, and the documentary really gets into kind of the culture of our family and how it was raised. I don't make excuses for my decisions, especially negative ones, because I think it's very hard to change if you're making excuses for why you do what you do. But I basically came from a very abusive background and I lived on my own uh, pretty much from teenage years on. And I was kind of in a position where I just kind of had to do and make my own way, you know, kind of through life. And I think that I was also pretty motivated by money as well in the sense that not that this was some great, you know, financial windfall. A promise, but I could see the difference um, between like the things that my father had, my dad, my father, Miley and my father dealt in different drugs, marijuana, cocaine, stuff like that. And then my mom was very poor. She had to kind of run away because my father was very abusive. So I got to kind of see the contrast between going away and, and trying to survive and someone that was kind of doing the wrong things and financially doing, you know, a lot better. I didn't have a desire to be like my father, but I think just in general, a lot of times you end up becoming very similar to people that you really don't want to be like, you know? So when it came to the position I was in, when I was approached about the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding 
basically attack is I was in my early 20s. I moved around a lot, did a lot of different kinds of jobs. I'm not somebody that says that it was a a one-time incident where I was kind of a good person and I just kind of got caught up in this one bad situation. My honor, if you want to call it, or my ethos was compromised already. So I was very much more open to doing whatever it took in a sense to survive and then wanting to thrive beyond that. So I think my morality was definitely in question, you know, at that point. Yeah. So that was a, that was a big part of being open. I mean, even if somebody suggests something to you in a format like that, you're already questionable about your ethics because the fact that somebody thinks that you might do something like that means that you've already gotten to the place where you're somebody that actually might hurt somebody for money. I do want to go into more about how vulnerable you became to be in that situation. But when you were approached to take out Nancy Kerrigan, how did they entice you to do that? Was there a promise of money or what is it that you went, oh, okay, that sounds great. I'll go ahead and do this. Well, a big factor was that the person that approached me was uh, an uncle through marriage that I was really close to. And I'm not saying that he manipulated me at a you know young age or anything like that. Um, but I did kind of trust his judgment. I didn't know that the other people involved were Sean Eckhart, you know, Jeff Galuli and Tanya Hardy. I didn't know them, knew nothing about them. I didn't know anything about figure skating. I mean, I knew what figure skating was, but I did not know the dynamics of endorsements. I didn't know how big it was. I believe it's the biggest watch sporting events in the Winter Olympics. I had no idea. So when I was approached by him, it was on the context of, well, we'll pay you to make sure that this person doesn't skate in the nationals. And then what's going to happen is we're going to try to parlay that into she's naturally going to get more money from at least from what I understood it was explained to me was is that the two top women athletes get money to train, you know, to travel, all that kind of stuff. Then obviously you have endorsements, whether that's Disneyland, whether that's Coca-Cola, whatever it is. So I think their mindset was that, well, if we can eliminate our biggest competition, then we're going to get more money for our training. We're going to get more endorsements and it's pretty much going to guarantee that Tanya would go into the Olympics. So I think they were hedging their bets on that. And then the real draw, I guess, for myself and my uncle was then what's going to happen is, is that this incident is going to cause people to have to have like security bodyguards stuff like that and then that would parlay into more work so they basically part of it was trying to create an environment of need where there wasn't one previously so instead of a huge payout it was the promise of more work down the road because you've created fear in that environment yes justin go ahead no, they did. And they did offer you, I think it was like $6,000 that specifically for the attack. And then also the idea of creating this industry that he would then be able to partake in as a security. 
Yes, exactly. Miley, I do want to go to you. You're Shane's sister, but you're much younger than he is. And so you were, what, three or four at the time of this? And so you didn't, you weren't even aware of what was happening. Yeah, I didn't even know my brother. So I had never met him when this happened. And then after this incident, Shane spent time in prison and then came back home. How old were you when you finally met him when he came home? I think I was five or six. I think I must have been five, about five years old. And what was your experience with Shane? I mean, did you see any of the anger or brutality or anything like that that he had been growing up in? Well, prior to meeting Shane, I had already met Shane in my brain. Like I had always, I had talked him up so highly in my own mind. And I don't know if I was trying to manifest this male that was going to come into our home and save us from our dad like but I had already been like oh that's my favorite brother and my other two siblings who had known Shane because they're older as well they would like like taunt me like you don't even know him you've not even met him yet but if I had to do school reports like the only family members I would draw was like Shane and my dog so I was like creating this alternate reality with this kind of superhero figure that I thought my brother was going to be because I had no, I had zero context of the event or I had no knowledge that my brother was a hitman or that he had done time in prison. And I'll never forget the, the day that I met him. He came up in a gold Cadillac and parked and we had this really long driveway with this fence and he came out of the car and he was just so big. Like my brother was massive. I mean, he's big now, but like when you're five, He was, you know, over six feet tall and just, he was the most muscular human I had ever seen. And it was weird because in a second, I think like my brain went into that survival mode where I was like, oh my gosh, if he's not this character that I've created to come and love and hope him to be, if he's just as mean as my dad, like I'm really screwed because he's huge (laughs) so um but he literally just said hi honey and picked me up in his arms and it was like he had lived up to everything that I had created him to be in my mind that was the hard thing to grapple with is who my brother has been my entire life is so contradictory of someone that could hurt someone and be a hitman and just be selfish right enough to put his needs in front of other people. It's just so different than the experience that I've had of my brother my entire life. So I just wanted to share that that other viewpoint and that other truth of, of who my brother really is, you know. Well, I think we hear this a lot when anything in the news about somebody being aggressive towards someone else, maybe killing them, beating them up. And so many times the family members are just like, that's not the person I knew. So it's interesting to get that different viewpoint on a story that was just known around the world. Justin, how did you meet up with these two and decide to do a documentary about the relationship between Miley and Shane? Like so many of us, you know, I grew up hearing about the story. I'd watched the 30 for 30 and always kind of had a pretty serious interest just because it was just such a spectacular, strange event. And then I met Miley. Shortly after I was in um, documentary film school, so the timing was kind of perfect. I was in Hawaii and we have mutual friends and and we met and she was, you know, just kind of sharing about her life and then talked about her older brother, who she said was like her hero. 
And every good quality that she sees in herself, she attributes to something that was instilled to her by her brother. And then sort of as an aside at the end of this conversation, she's like, oh, and by the way, he's the guy that attacked Nancy Kerrigan. (laughs) And I was like, I must have misheard you, but did you just say he's the guy that attacked Nancy Kerrigan? And I had known a lot about this event and had never heard that the hitman was half Hawaiian and had any connection to Hawaii. So I was almost just like, are you sure? Like, that doesn't seem right. And so it was shocking to me. But also, immediately, I just felt like it was another dimension to somebody that I had kind of peripherally known about and only knew this one thing. And to see somebody look at this person in such a different way, to me, is just fascinating and compelling. And you know, one of my favorite quotes from Brian Stevenson is, uh, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I think that this story just kind of illustrates that in a, in a really beautiful way. This is a good place to take a break. When we come back, I want to delve more into, Shane, your childhood and understanding that a little bit more, as well as Miley's, and also the two siblings. We don't really talk about them much in the documentary. I'd like to know where they are. So we'll be right back with Justin Young. He's the filmmaker and producer of My Hero, the Hitman, Miley Stamp, and Shane Stamp. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Money Making Sense, the show that it affects your life in any way money-wise. We're talking about it. And today we're talking about how abuse in the home can affect your job potential, which I guess is reflective of your self-esteem. Joining me today is filmmaker Justin Young. He produced the film My Hero, the Hitman. It's a documentary. And two of the subjects of the film are Miley Stant and Shane Stant. So welcome back. Thank you. I do want to go in, Shane and Miley, you had different mothers, but the same father. And sounds like, according to the documentary, that the abuse was pretty bad. A lot of emotional abuse, physical abuse, um, psychological abuse going on, which can be very traumatic as well. How is it, Shane, you grew up and was on the path of being in the underworld, essentially, and willing to take out people or at least injure them. But Miley, you have gone to school. You are now just about to get your license as a hula instructor. How do those paths happen? They're they're very different. Well, I think obviously all of us have just different base personalities and stuff like that. And then the dynamics of just finance and just the way that the world works changes a lot. You know, so I'm, I just turned 51 
I'm so much older than her that generally speaking, there's kind of this, well, you get, you know, you get a job, you get married, you get a house, you build kids. That was kind of my, more of my generation, like coming through. And when it came to opportunities, I think that there's, there's obviously a huge difference. And I'm not saying that somebody, the way someone's raised necessarily helps them be financially successful because there's most of the people that have done it on their own have come from some kind of hardship background, no basis of help whatsoever. But I do think that a lot of times, even if they don't come from money, sometimes what happens is, is that they come from a worldview and philosophy that helps them be successful. So if you have a parent or parents that are like, you know what, you really can do more than you think that you can do all the way down to, Hey, we're going to co-sign for you to get a car to help start building your credit. All of those things come into play because whether you're in the base survival mode or you're in the mentality of going, wow, I really have the ability to really accomplish great things. If someone's putting you down every single day, someone does nothing to help you whatsoever, and you're being abused physically, emotionally, mentally, there's a lot of psychological things that you have to, and emotional things you have to overcome just to get to ground zero. So you're not starting at a place of relative healthiness. You're starting at a, at a deficit already. So by the time that you're impressionable ages have gone through you already have kind of a worldview of like who you are what your value is stuff like that and when you parlay that and mix that with for example myself like becoming a criminal and then you get convicted go to prison you're a felon you're an ex-felon forever and then as that transitions into the way we are now we, we have so much information that there's kind of no escaping your past. So you have to either do something and work with that and utilize it, especially from like a financial standpoint. But first you have to get yourself healed and healthy emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. But there's definitely for me in my situation, there was a lot of things that I just couldn't do because I had a felony on my record. Did you go through counseling in prison or maybe after you came out of prison? Because usually there's this cycle of abuse. It's handed down from one generation to the next because that's all you understood growing up. So how did you break that cycle or have you? For me, there wasn't, at least the prisons I was in, they're not designed to rehabilitate you. They're designed to hold you and then release you when it's time for you to be released. So you can do some schooling and stuff like that. But for the most part, um, it's not really designed to make you grow and be better. That being said, you have to make have the mindset that you want to grow and be better. You have to recognize in yourself that there's brokenness that has to be repaired. And when you do that, and you start to look into yourself, you start to look in your life, you realize that I didn't have the capability to fix myself. I had the desire, but I did go through through therapy on my own, my own decision to do that. And I just really got into how I could grow as a person, like how I could change. And I think that's one of the most amazing parts of being human that's different than 
animals and everything else is we can literally look at ourselves and go, okay, like what kind of person do I want to be? Like, who do I want to be? You know? And I think the big thing was, is that when I was in prison, I looked at myself and I knew that I would be identified with this attack pretty much forever. Like it wasn't going to go anywhere. And I was like, do I want to be identified with this and turn that into something positive? Or do I want to be identified with this? And that's just who I am. And then looking around, we have natural abilities. One of mine is I'm very good at pattern recognition. So I look around and I can see everybody and I see patterns in people's lives. And I was like, this isn't a pattern I want to live. I don't want to be in. And I could see, you know, people going out, people coming back in, people going out, people coming back in. And then once you get on that cycle and pattern, then it's like, okay, well, who are the people that you're associated with? They're criminals. They're people that are broken. They already have a skewed sense of like value, value of life, value, quality of life. And then what happens is then that guy dates a girl that was broken, abused, molested, and then they argue, fight, it becomes abusive, they have kids, those kids watch that abuse going on, then that guy gets drugged out of the house by the police, the little kids see that the police are bad because they're pulling their mom or dad out of the house, taking them away, putting them in foster care. They go into foster care where they're molested or treated horribly. They're separated from the people that they do love. And when you're young, you don't care. My dad beat me with two by fours, but I would always be upset if someone hurt him or took him. So when you see that train, then obviously it's going to keep perpetuating itself. So then those kids are going to have a natural affinity to be against authority. They don't have the same fear patterns of getting in trouble or something like that. And then if your culture is part of that, whether it's from a gang culture or something, then you're kind of pride yourself on that. So then you're just going to stay in that loop 100%. I think the difference between myself and with my sister is we recognize that we don't want to perpetuate this life for our future, our future generations, anything like that. And at some point it has to stop because it's just going to keep going and going and going. And you have the ability, if you have the desire to stop it. Miley, how old were you when the abuse stopped? When he died. So I think that huge difference between me and all my siblings, because they are older, was the span of abuse. My dad died when I was six. So I essentially had six years worth of my father. So I was really, really fortunate at that time when my, my father was sick, that's when my brother came in. So it was this transition of losing someone that was causing abuse and gaining someone that became my protector. So I think that that is something like you speak about my other siblings. They didn't have that. They had had a longer span of abuse. And at that point, I think their formidable years had already passed where my brother didn't provide that sense or maybe they didn't acknowledge that, that transition that had happened in the home. Yeah, I think that abuse will manifest itself in different ways with different people. I think mine started a, traje a trajectory of perfectionism. You know, you, you mentioned that I went to school and anything that I did, I, I had to be the best. It was this like perfectionism. And Brene Brown speaks about perfectionism being insecurity. You know, you want this when you are abused. You know, my father was sexually abusive to us and 
when you have that foundation of your parents are supposed to love and protect you. So if that is broken, you are going to search for love and acceptance in other capacities all around your life. So for me, I had to be, when I acknowledged that my dad was really proud of me when I danced hula, well, then I have to be the best hula dancer. I have to be, I have to be perfect because my dad's giving me that, that affection that I'm yearning, even as a five-year-old, those applause, those cheers, you know, that you're looking in the audience for your parents. Like that's who you look to, to that, that's what defines your view on love and so I think it, for me, it, it had manifested, like I was always a straight A student. I would kill myself. I took six AP classes. I essentially entered my first year of college. I was the first one in our family to go to college. I entered college almost as a junior, but it was like, I would kill myself to try and be perfect and to try and be the best at this and the first in our family to do this. And it had gotten really exhausting at a point, you know, like I became this like crazy workaholic and I was working all the time and I was like wow this is like not me I'm not doing something that I love and you know my brother what my brother instilled in in me when I was really young is that like I could fail that was one of the like most powerful things that my brother gifted me is because I've always like taken crazy risks and crazy chances in my life because he's like yeah okay what what oh well if you fail you fail you know so that was like something that my brother instilled in me from a really young age that you know that I had the will and the drive to do it to do it and take the chance and if I'd failed he'll be there comfort me and try and pick me up dust me off and you know something else will come along that you can try next and um, yeah I think that that's why uh, me and my siblings were a little bit different was just the the span that I had experienced the abuse was much less and then my brother coming into, you know, really, really transition my life. In the break, you talked about you had decided uh, several years ago, you didn't want a career. When did that change for you? I mean, I'm assuming that you went to college to have a degree in something that would take you into a career. What was it that changed? Well, I didn't. I didn't go into college with the intention of having a career. The intention was just, I needed to be the first one in my family to go to college. Okay. So the intention wasn't there. And that's why, you know, schooling for me wasn't, I actually was kind of bored in college. I like to be challenged by the human experience. I love, um, I love interacting with people and I couldn't, I couldn't find a job or a career that I could see myself in the rest of my life because all I've ever seen myself doing is hula. It's where I feel the most me. It's where I feel that I have the most to contribute to my community, to the world, to the future generations. So I think I fought it for a while because I thought I couldn't make a life out of it. I thought that, you know, the kumu hula that I were, I was looking at, they all had 40 hour a week jobs and then were, they were doing hula on the side. And that looked like slave labor to me. Um, So, (laughs) But no, I just, I've figured out a way to do something that I love and that I feel the need to do and to be in the space that I need to be in. And it allows me the, um, the time and the energy and the space and the presence 
to raise my daughter in the way that I, I want to raise her. And are you making enough money teaching hula that you can that you can afford, keep a roof over your head, you're feeding yourself and your daughter, that's all coming to you because you're doing something you love? Yeah. Yeah, I had a similar experience. I was raised with a man who was like, you will go into computer science and that's the only thing you should be doing. And I hated computer science. <laughs> like, So my minor was in theater and I wound up later in life transitioning from more technical jobs, which I was pretty much miserable in, to radio. So I get that. And I'm making more money now than I was doing a technical job. So it, it works. <laughs> no more starving artists. Yay. Yes, I know. <laughs> All right. I want to go more into the movie where this documentary where we can see it. And also, we still need to address your siblings and what they've done in their life. But we're going to do that in part two of how abuse affects your life and your potential career and income with my guests, Miley Stant, Shane Stant, and filmmaker Justin Young. He is the producer of My Hero, The Hitman. Thanks for listening. You can email me with any questions or topics you want to hear about at hkelly at ksl.com. That's h-k-e-l-l-y at ksl.com. And because this is Money Making Sense, you can subscribe for free on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, and you'll never miss another episode. Thanks for being a Money Making Sense listener. Follow your common sense on the social media. Money Making Sense on Facebook. Twitter, and Instagram. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.